this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. You know, as entrepreneurs, we always talk about multiples of EBITDA. And, you know, Bob got three times EBITDA and Jane got six times EBITDA. And we talk a lot about these multiples as if that's the only thing that's driving the value of your company. And remember that there's another number that's arguably even more important than the multiple, and that is what is being multiplied, meaning your profit. Now, we all have profit that we express to the government in terms of you know doing our tax return at the end of the year, but profit in the way a buyer will look at your company may be different than what you report to the government because of a process called adjusting. Essentially, you are going to adjust your EBITDA to reflect how your company will perform as a division of your acquirer. Now, as a division of an acquirer, of course, there may be things that you pay for today that you won't need to pay for as a division of an acquirer. And it's that process of making those adjustments that can actually really increase the profitability of your business, at least in the eyes of an acquirer, and therefore improve the overall value of your company. My next guest, Ari Ackerman, played this like uh, to a T when he went to sell his business to Together Work, a company uh, that was backed by a billion dollar private equity group who told him that they wouldn't go above a certain multiple. So instead of focusing on getting them to increase their multiple, he got them to focus on the number that was being multiplied and in the process got a much better value for his business, Bunk One. So here to tell you the rest of the story is Ari Ackerman. Ari Ackerman, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So tell me about Bunk One. How did this thing get started? So Bunk One uh, got started back in 1999. I was in graduate school at Northwestern uh, Kellogg Business School, and I wrote a business plan for a venture capital class that I was taking, uh, and the name of the company that I was writing about was Acker Camps at the time, and it was essentially rolling up the summer camp industry. I was very excited about it, and uh, it was my last semester of school, and I presented my business plan to Chicago-based venture capitalists uh, who were coming in to sort of judge it, maybe even invest in it. And of course, they told me it was the worst idea they'd ever heard in their entire life. And being the entrepreneur, the confident entrepreneur, uh, that uh, I think is good in, uh, in terms of equality for an entrepreneur, I said, thank you very much, but I think I'm going to start this anyway. So I uh, literally got in my car after I graduated and in my Willie Loman style, uh, drove around the country visiting summer camps and developing initial relationships with summer camp owners. Uh, which is a very important piece to bunk one and to the summer camp industry, developing those relationships. And so, this, uh, and at the same time, so, sorry. So the idea was actually to do a roll up of summer camps, nothing to do with software. It was to to start buying these camps. Um, interesting. The, 
the very initial idea, the very initial business plan when it was after camps was an actual roll up, uh, leveraging economies of scale and uh, buying cheaper products essentially for the summer camps. But that very, very quickly turned into a technology concept. Uh, even before I finished the project, to be honest with you, I'm like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. I can do the same thing and provide websites and uh, provide technology to summer camps they couldn't afford to do on their own or really didn't want to do on their own, essentially. Especially back in 1999, you have to remember the 1999-2000 landscape where yeah. uh, dot-coms were sort of the rage. And um, especially in the summer camp industry, which is a very slow to adapt industry. So here I was coming in and meeting people. Yeah, no, I wanted to pick up on this. And, and so especially for, uh, you know, for people who don't know what a summer camp is, uh, you know, I live in Toronto, Ari, you're in New York. So kind of a rite of passage of a, you know, a 12, 13, 14 year old kid is to go away to summer camp, skin your knees, you know, learn how to canoe and, and sail. And, and it's sort of a rite of passage. People outside of North America maybe aren't, aren't totally aware of a, this kind of summer camp idea, but um, I think in your case, you'd gone to summer camp, knew what a profound impact it would have and sort of decided to make this a, a space you want to plan. Right. I mean, when I started the business, I started it. I mean, I was in business school and I had a business concept, but it was also a passion of mine. I mean, summer camp and the experience I had there and the camaraderie and the growth and sort of the magic that you experience at camp, I loved. And when I was sort of in business school, I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. And all right, so I was looking at different, different types of industries and what I can maybe do that I like that has an opportunity as well. And I'm like, wait, summer camp mom and pop industry that really hasn't changed over the years. I can do something in, the, in that industry that they can't afford to do on their own. They don't want to do on their own. I can make an impact and still do something that I have a passion for. So you turn it into a technology play. Maybe walk us through what the early days of the technology looked like. Sure. So there I was driving around the country, essentially, uh, presenting. At that point, it really was already a technology play where I was going to give camps websites essentially. And the reason really camps didn't even have a website yet back in 1999. Most didn't uh, at least. And the ones that did were sort of archaic. And part of the website concept were the two initial big uh, bunk one um, products. The first of which is an online photo gallery where the parents in a password protected area can log in and see the pictures of their kids and sort of feel that connection, even though they're away from their child. And again, it's password protected. So it's a safe environment for the parent to log in and see what's going on. And we also had this concept of bunk notes, which is the ability to email your child in a one-way system where the parent basically writes a note on the computer and then it's printed out for the child when they're at camp. So the kid is not on a computer when they're at camp, they're still experiencing what they should be at camp, the magic, the camaraderie, the friendship, not on a computer, um, but they're getting contact from their parent essentially. I love this. Uh, and initially, I love it. Yeah, my my kids go to summer camp, right? So they're 11 and nine. And as a parent, like you want to know what's going on, right? You want to communicate. Hopefully they write back to you. They never do. <laughs> but you certainly want to like let them know you're thinking of them. Right, exactly. And this was like as soon as we introduced them into the world. So the 99 was my first summer when I drove around the country. Uh, 2000, we had about 50 to 75 camps. In 2001, we already had like 250 camps because once a camp heard about this and the parent heard about this and they told their camp, how do you not have a pass protected photo gallery area where I could see what's going on at camp? They called me and they're like, oh, my God, Ari, what are you doing here? I need to get on board. And what are they paying to get on board? So the, the business model is that, does the parent pay or is it the camp that pays? 
So initially we sort of had both options. We had where the parent would pay us a fee, both to see the pictures and by the way, to buy the pictures as well. And then to send the emails, we would, it was a credit-based system. So you would buy essentially 50 credits for $55 for the summer, and you're able to send the notes. And every time you send a note, we deduct a credit from your account. Uh, we became very creative with the notes um, in terms of what the, you could do with them. So we would charge more credits for that as well. So like a one credit note would be just a plain text email. If you want to add a photo to your note, you would add a credit. If you want to add the box score from the baseball game from the night before, you would add a credit um, to make the notes more fun and more interesting. Because basically what they're doing is they're sending emails to their child at camp. So we sort of made, the, uh, made it more interesting and more fun for both the parent and the child to send these emails to their kids at camp. And how did that evolve over time, the, the pricing model in particular? Uh, yeah, so initially it was, it was either the uh, parent paid for it or the camp paid for it, sorry. Um, and what we found is we really prefer the parents to pay for it because we could only charge the camp a certain amount of money that they're, they had a threshold for what they thought would be they'd be willing to pay us for the service essentially. But the parent, we learned, had a, had a more uh, agreeable threshold in terms of the bunk one revenue model. Um, in that they were willing to spend whatever it took to stay in contact with their child. So it was kind of this win-win for, for us and for the camp owners in that they didn't have to pay for it. Their parents paid for it to use the system. And by the way, we would also give them commissions on the emails that were being sent to their kids at camp uh, for the ink, for the paper, for all the labor they had to do to, uh, to make sure the letter got, or the bunk note got to the, the child when they were there as well. Got it. And so you're the camp, what, like the camp lets its parents aware, know about the bunk one service, and then the parent decides whether they want to use it and they pay to play, basically. Exactly. So essentially there's a, the, every camp sort of has a website. And when initially I was giving the website in order to uh, have the camp have a photo gallery and a bunk note service. Once the camps were, grew a little more sophisticated and they had their websites that they were building on their own, Funk One became a link on the camp website that the parent would log into, and again, a password protected area where it was a safe environment where they could see the pictures that were posted uh, from the camp for that day or that week, uh, and then log into their Bunk Note account to send the emails as well. Um, you asked about creativity, how the, the, uh, the product changed a little bit. We got a little we had kept adding services essentially. And one of the very popular services we added over the years was something called bunk replies, which is the ability for the kid to write back. Now we didn't want to um, have the child on a computer. So we had to come up with a creative way for the child to write back without, uh, you know, disrupting what they're doing at camp. So we came up with a system where the, where the um, child basically had a hand, had a, a letter with a barcode on top of it. They hand write their letter on that barcode. The camp owner, collects all those notes, faxes them to a toll-free number that we gave them. And from that barcode, we're able to read what child it was because that letter was given to the parent from the child before they went to camp and inserted into their Bunk One account the actual letter, handwritten letter, from the child back to the parent. Awesome. And who's paying for Bunk Replies? Again, that's a credit-based system. So every time they sent a Bunk Reply or received a Bunk Reply, we would subtract a credit from their account. Love it. What's the staff model you've got for this business? Sorry, like what, like employees there in New York, like who's doing what? Have you got product people, salespeople? Like how does it, how does, how have you staffed for this? 
Yeah, so we basically broke it down between sales, technology. Uh, obviously, I had some an operations person, uh, marketing. But it's basically if I most people were either involved in technology or sales and uh, customer support, essentially. Got it. And and then bring us up to present day. How has Bunk One, the product suite, evolved to to present day? What's what's the current product suite look like? So we've always, I've always been very proud that we're kind of the leader in the tech space in the camp world. Um, so we kept evolving and literally I tried to introduce a new product just about every year we've been in existence. And I told you about bunk uh, photo gallery, bunk notes, bunk replies. We introduced the staffing service. We could find a job for your camp, for your a camp. You can uh, search for a, a camp that you want to send your child to. Um, then we became more sophisticated in the online registration space where you, when you register, uh, for camp, we have developed a whole Bunk One database system where you register and uh, it goes into a basically a program where you can keep track of all your finances and your medical reports that you need for camp and uh, basically everything you do to run the camp, we built a system for for the camp owners. Um, so that was kind of how we evolved into a uh, one-stop shop essentially for the summer camp owner and the parent. Were you, I mean, it sounds like to me you've done something brilliant, which is obviously found uh, a very, very, very specific niche, learned it really, really well, and just evolved the product suite around that. Were you ever tempted along the way uh, to take what you learned serving summer camps and apply it to another industry? I actually did do that. So we tried it in other industries. We tried it in nursing homes where I had a company called Care Letters, uh, which is essentially, we didn't do the photo gallery necessarily, but we did the bunk note concept where you could send a note to your loved one who's in the nursing home. Um, and that was moderately successful, but it really didn't have the uh, attraction that we have when the child's away from camp. It was kind of an interesting phenomenon, uh, if that's the lack of a better word, in that it's really the same clientele, because it's either you're sending a note to your child at camp, or you're sending a note to the parent who might be in a nursing home, essentially. And uh, for good or for bad, we found that the parent was more willing to spend money on sending a note to their child as opposed to their parent who's in the nursing home. That could be a statement on the statement of like society at large today. So that's, that's probably a bad thing. So did you shut down? I'll, I'll let people, yeah, I'll let people draw their own conclusions yeah. on that. I'm just saying from a, from a business model, it worked a lot better in summer camp. Um, yeah. And we, I, I also thought about other industries, that, believe it or not, including jails. I, I had a little concept called jail mail, wow. where I was trying to incorporate the bunk note system into jails, but there were a lot of le um, government legal restrictions that I was sort of facing that made it a little tougher. Um, but the camp industry was just so perfect in that this was this, you know, place where the child is away from any technology. The only way, the only way a parent can access their child is through a company that I started that they have to pay for than to log in and see what's going on and to send a note to their child. So we, when, we got a, when we signed up a camp, which was the way we sort of signed up our, our, our customers, uh, we then got access to every single one of their clients. So uh, it became very popular for, for parents, obviously, obviously. And, uh, we had close to 100% participation in a lot of the camps. What was the privacy? What was the privacy thing uh, there? Because obviously, as as a as a parent, all of a sudden this third party company, Bunk One, I know nothing about, starting to email me all these like, 
wait a minute, I, you know, I just signed my kid for summer camp. I didn't agree to be marketed to by this third party company. Like, how did you guys stick handle that? Right. So there on, on a legal level, we did make sure that they signed uh, documents when they signed up for camp, essentially part of the, uh, what they signed up for when they're sending their child to camp is the ability for the camp owner to market their image. Uh, and that was signed by every parent, but it's more than just a legal restriction. As you say, it's your child, and you want to be very careful that your child is in a safe, protected environment. And that's something I've been very, very conscientious about over the 17 years we were in business to make sure that the brand name of Bunk One was always one that the parent felt very safe in. And every time I was interviewed, every time I talked to any camp owner, and just me personally, um, because I actually had my niece who was uh, in one of the camps for many years that used Bon Quan. I wanted to make sure that we had a safe environment for the parents, that they knew that whatever was going on there was password protected and Bon Quan was a place where the brand name was, his, was a place that they could trust. How did you guys deal with cash flow? Because I think of obviously summer camp is a summer thing, right? So huge inflection of revenue uh, or injection, I should say, of revenue in the summer. But then on, how did you handle November and December? Right. So we definitely, it was definitely a seasonal type of revenue flow. Um, and uh, we made a lot of money during the summer. We did very well in terms of parent signups, as I had mentioned before. Um, but then we always tried to find ways to monetize what we were doing over the, the winter months. And online registration was a way we could do it because we were collecting credit. We were um, collecting payments, and that was a service we were providing, essentially. And um, we would sell photos during the off-season <laughs> where we would have special deals on Christmas and Hanukkah or Valentine's Day. We can go back and see the pictures of when you're at a camp and buy those pictures before we um, remove them this year for next year's photos, essentially. But that was always a challenge to try and see uh, how we could monetize during the off season. Now, in the same respect, my, my expenses were also lower during mm. the off season because I would actually hire uh, 10 to 15 additional um, uh, really college students, educated college students to provide the customer service for the parents during the summer. That's one of the things we did for the, for the camps. We not only provided the service, but we also did, if any parent had a question, uh, they could call or email Bunk One directly. They, they didn't have to deal with the summer camp, and the camp owner appreciated us for doing that. Um, so, you know, we had I had extra uh, staff during the summer, which was more expensive, obviously, and we had server costs and other uh, technology-related costs that were seasonal as well. So we were able to sort of manage the revenues and expenses in a good way, even though we were uh, really a seasonal business. And I was very careful in terms of how much money I would uh, sort of uh, keep within the business that I wouldn't distribute uh, in order to make sure we were funded for the entire off season. Got it. You know, it's funny. It strikes me as interesting that you were able to stay uh, still for 17 years with one business. Cause from what I know about you and we'll talk about tribes in a moment, you, you now have a new business. Uh, you had the care notes, you had the jail idea. You sound like a pretty entrepreneurial guy. How did you stick with one business for 17 years? <laughs> well, I, I sort of did. And I had other businesses that I was always starting on the side, but bunk one, I was really so proud of. And it was really, we created an industry. You know, we, we were the first ones to sort of say like, 
we can bring technology into this old school world of summer camp. And for me, it was an, you know, it was one business, but it was an exciting business because it was constantly evolving. And it was just, you know, I had these amazing clients that we had for, you know, 17 years now, a lot of them. And we always wanted to make it better for them and for the parents. So yes, I'm definitely a serial entrepreneur. And yes, I'd be happy to talk about what I'm doing now that I sold Bunk One. But I was always very proud of what we were doing. And it was exciting enough that it got me, uh, you know, it, it kept me interested for as long as it did. So what changed? Why, why sell after 17 years? So in order to answer that question, it's really a business lifestyle, life cycle uh, answer in terms of where we're at at Bunk One. So maybe I step back for a second and tell you how we got to where we are today. It might answer your question. Um, so I started Bunk One in 99. And I really, it was very sort of a, you know, well-known company within the venture capital private equity space. So I really was always getting uh, emails from people like, can I invest in your company? Can I buy your company? And was very happy for a while. So I kind of ignored that. But, but in 2008, I, I, I really fielded one, an offer that was very interesting to me. Uh, we were flying high at the time, and, uh, but the guy gave me a really good offer and really was about to sign it. And at that point, uh, just wasn't ready and turned it down at the last second. Um, little did I know a year later, I would have sort of a personal situation uh, in 2009 where, where my mom got sick and I stepped back in 2009 from the business at that point. And uh, I promoted um, my lead sales guy who had been with me from the start to basically be the president of the company. Um, I was away for about three years, sort of not really involved in the business as much as I had been up to that point. And the business uh, took a hit. We, we competition got a little stiffer and the guy that ran the company really wasn't equipped to be the leader that I, that I had, had hoped uh, he would have been. And, and, um, and so we weren't in a great place necessarily in 2012, 2013, when I actually came back to the business, I um, tragically did lose my mom in 2012. And then I stepped back into the business in 2013 to say, okay, what's going on here? Um, at that point, I had to fire um, that, uh, that president that I had appointed, but I had a guy who had been hired a year before in the business um, that I had known for many years in the camp road because he was a camp owner. So I appointed him to be the new president, essentially of bunk one. And he completely turned around the business. Um, literally the first day he got into the office, he painted the office and put new carpets down. And it was just a complete change of attitude um, within Bunk One. Because at that point, we were already a 13, 14-year-old business. Um, and so then, I, again, I still was fielding offers from, from private equity people. And in about 2014, 2015, I thought about uh, potentially – taking somebody up on that, but we weren't quite ready to that. But in 2016, we actually turned the corner again. And we were on that U shape, we were coming back up uh, in terms of becoming profitable. We were always profitable, but our revenue was, was moving back in the right direction. So I felt it was a good time to at least field an offer that would be palatable that I would, I would say, okay, it's time to maybe move on from bunk one. And in that business life cycle, I didn't want to do that until we were at a point where we turned it around. And this gentleman that I hired to run Bunk One at that point did do that, so I thought we were ready. What have you learned about hiring uh, a president 
from going through a bad experience and going through a good experience. And while you think about that, I'll just give some a little bit more context. Obviously, a lot of our listeners will be at one of those sort of inflection points, or, or I should maybe say a fork in the road, where they're they're considering their options. They, they, and one of the options on the table is bring in a president and, and let themselves as the owner uh, sort of kick themselves up to the, the chairman's office, sort of become a more hands-off owner of the business, treat it like it's an asset as opposed to their day-to-day -day job, maybe start a couple of other businesses uh, as, as we, our attention gets sort of diverted to other things. Um, you've, you've done it twice, once it worked, once it didn't. What was the difference? You know, I think the first time for me, it was more, I wasn't vested in, in who I was really hiring, and I, I did it as an emotional decision as opposed to a business decision, somebody who had been with me for a long time and sort of, okay, he was next in line to sort of be, to run the company. When I hired the guy after, uh, who is currently uh, still the president of the company, um, he wasn't the next in line. He had just been hired at Bunk One uh, a year before but I saw real potential and promise in him and he cared and he uh, wanted to add value and he wanted to increase profitability and wanted a fully engaged team. I could see where his head and his heart were. And so I promoted him over other people that frankly got upset when he got promoted. It's interesting and because I, I got, I got to push on this because what I hear is your reasons for liking the second guy were very emotional. Like you could see that he cared, you could see that he wanted to drive the business and you could see he was bringing a fresh attitude. And, and what I'm also hearing you say is the first guy, the one that didn't work, it was a very emotional decision. You sound like a pretty emotional guy. So <laughs> like, what, it, like, which is it? You know what I mean? Like is it, when, if, if, you're, if you were coaching an entrepreneur who was just about to hire their first president, um, what should they be looking for? Well, I think my wife would appreciate that you think I'm an emotional guy. I appreciate that. Um, but from a business perspective, I disagree with maybe I wasn't explaining it well. Because the second decision was really more of a business decision. Because if I had been more of like, okay, Ari's a nice guy. He's promoting the next guy that's next, that, the guy that's next in line. I would have hired somebody else for the second, for the, uh, the more recent hire. But I didn't. I made a business decision. And I said, yeah, I like the guy, obviously, but he was also the best business mind to run the company and to bring Monk One into the future and to and grow revenue by 30% and uh, add value and, um, you know, increase the number of clients, expand overseas, uh, all the things that we wanted to do with the business, he was the right guy for it. So, I, you know, and it's really kind of an interesting question that you ask because Monk One itself was kind of an emotional business for me as opposed to maybe a purely business uh business <laughs> but um so it's kind of i've always been i've always had my emotions on my sleeve in terms of bunk one because it's a passion that i had summer camp um so it was hard for me to separate it in a lot of uh moments during the course of the business but i feel like i really did it in hiring the guy in 2013 2014 um to really step up and uh and over over you know, to it over people that were next in line to the point where actually the people that were next in line, we actually had to fire uh, pretty quickly after the guy that got promoted because they were so upset that they really couldn't be a part of the new organization. Those must have been tough conversations. Go back to the, the who, what's the guy's name that uh, is the current president? The current president's name is Rob Burns. Rob, okay. So what is it, 
like obvious or demonstrable that you saw in Rob, uh, like, like you said that he was a camper. So he kind of got, uh, right. camp as a, as a sort of, he was a customer as well as being a business person. I mean, did he have a degree? Did he have an MBA? Uh, was there anything like outwardly that you would see on his LinkedIn profile or on his resume that you would, that you think was, was important to see? Well, as I sort of mentioned earlier, the camp business is a very relationship-driven business. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that made Bunkwin so successful over the years was that I would go to every conference and I became this expert tech guy at the conferences and I would speak at all the camp conferences um, on technology and summer camps. And you have to sort of shake everybody's hands. And when you go to the conferences, I always went to the happy hours and I always went to the bar at night because these guys were my clients, but they were my friends. And sort of goes along with the conversation we had earlier about the security and making sure that they knew who I was and who they're giving their parent information to. And that's what this guy, Rob, is kind of all about. He's, first of all, he was a camp owner, uh, a camp director, I should say. He he worked many years in the camping industry and was really, really well-loved within the industry. Um, And I felt lucky, actually, that we were able to hire him away from being a director at a camp to come work on the business side of camp uh, for Bunk One, essentially. Got it. What were your revenues in 2008 when you got the, the first offer that you, that you really seriously considered? Uh, I don't talk revenue, but we were, we were our, our margins, we always had very high margins in terms of my business. Um, and we were basically at the peak, essentially, of our revenue at that point. Okay, the actual number's not as as important as what I wanted to understand was the trajectory. So 2008, you're, you're kind of peaking. Uh, it sounds like 2012, you hit a trough in terms of top line revenue. Like what would the difference be on a percentage basis from the peak in, in 08 to the trough in, in 12, how much down were you in top line revenue? Would you say? Yeah, we lost, we lost close to 30, 35% of our business. Okay. Um, We've regained obviously some of it since then, but, uh, from the 28 to 2012, we really, really took a hit. Got it. And then from 2012 to the acquisition, uh, sort of what, what would your top line growth rate have been? Again, we turned it around and we, we sort of regained about 20, 25% of our business. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. So I'm reading into that, that, that you were growing on the top line at the time of the acquisition, sort of somewhere in the kind of five to 10% range per year. That's about, that's about right. Ballpark, just so people, you get a sense of. Uh, oh, yeah, ballpark. I think it's, it's more the story. It's, you know, the numbers, yes, are important that we actually turned it around five, 10% uh, over the, you know, but it's really that, okay, Bunk One took a hit, but look, we still have this brand name within the industry. Mm-hmm. And we were able to use the brand name, which we built a very strong reputation, a very solid reputation on, and say, listen, we had our troubles, but here's why we're back. Here's the improvements that we made. Here's the new app that we have in the summer camp world for parents, essentially. So we did a lot of improvements, and people were willing to listen because of the brand equity that we had built up over the years. How did you get Rob to join what he must have seen as a somewhat of a sinking ship at the time? <laughs> I mean, people, <laughs> we're having this interview, so you're hearing sort of the back end. <laughs> 
of, uh, of Bunk One. Yeah, yeah. But it was hardly, a, I mean, it was hardly a sinking ship. Bunk One is, is an incredibly well-known brand within the industry. And we, I was fielding a lot of people who wanted to work for Bunk One. We didn't hire. It, was, it wasn't like that, as maybe he just said. It was definitely a very, very strong brand with a good name that everybody did want to work for. Wasn't wasn't a tough sell. Okay, got it. Okay, so it, some of the, the the dip in revenue you've been able to mask not mask it, but it just it wouldn't be obvious to the public per se. Uh, you know, everything was by the way dipping in between two thousand eight two thousand eleven. You know, uh, companies were losing a lot more than thirty five percent of their revenue in that in that right. three year window. That's a fair so, point. Of so right. and and I would think you know camp is a discretionary spend for a lot of parents, right? So that's one of the things that gets dropped when. When mom or dad loses a job, I would think. It is a discretionary spend, but I will say that what I've learned is that parents will spend their last dollar on their children. <laughs> so if they can afford to send their kids to their camp, to camp, they will. And by the way, if they do send their kids to their camp, they're not skimping on signing up for the bunk one service. So we didn't really lose clients um, because they wanted to save the $10. Yes, we lost a few clients because camps were down a little bit, but even camps weren't really hurt as much as the overall economy was. Isn't that interesting? It's, uh, it's interesting. That I, again, I, I don't know the market, so clearly you know it uh, intimately. So, so 2016 came along and you turned this corner, you, you, you kind of moved in the right direction. Then what? Did you, did you take the business to market? Did you hire an advisor? Like, how did you sort of take the next step to, uh, to the acquisition? Yeah, so, so at that point we were, we were in a good place and I kept getting emails and um, we had an we had an interesting um, uh, email from from TogetherWork, the person, the company that eventually bought us, saying they'd love to meet us. And I had heard about them because they were sort of active in the camp space in terms of looking around and stuff like that. And I know what they were doing, and I sort of admired and thought it was a, a they were on the right track. So we we fielded the phone call and we had a meeting in the office, and uh, they came in and we sat down and they signed an NDA and. We started talking about Bunk One and what they wanted to do in the summer camp industry. And so did you know from that, like, what was it about the first email that, did you know from the first email that it was a veiled acquisition conversation that they wanted to have? You know, you know, those first emails, I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs get them, like they always want to come talk. They don't tell you right away that they want to, they usually say they want to either invest in the company or want to talk to you about the company. Or some sort of strategic but, uh, relationship. <laughs> Strategic relationship. Yeah. <laughs> we all get those, you know. So I, I knew uh, what the intent was. Uh, yeah, from the, from even though it wasn't uh, stated so obviously, it was pretty clear what they, what they were, were at, what they wanted. Got it. And do you remember how they, they actually made the first uh, suggestion that it was an acquisition? I mean, did they say? Uh, you know, we'd like to buy you or, or, or were you forced to say, Hey guys, let's come clean here. You're here because you want to buy the business. Isn't that right? No, I, I think it was more on, on their end. I think it was, or maybe I would say both. I mean, when they came in for that first meeting, you know, it's, we're, we're adults. We've been through this. We sort of know kind of without having to say what the meeting was going to be about kind of right away what the meeting was about. So it was, you know, almost after, after that first meeting, I have to say we, we tried to move pretty quickly because I did like, what they were, what they had to say, even in that first initial meeting about uh, what they could, how they combine resources within the summer camp industry, how they're buying other summer camp companies. Um, so, and I really liked the guy, frankly, from a personal, you say I'm an emotional guy. So 
you know, part of my uh, emotion, I guess, was that I really liked the guy that came in to talk to us initially. And I, and I trusted him and I felt like he, uh, he was a guy I could, you know, this was a long way away into the future, but he was a guy like if I sold the business, okay, I could turn my 17 year old baby over to this guy. Interesting. And he was the president of Together Work? No, he's the more the business, uh, business development guy. Okay. Um, but, uh, but I, if I met him, I liked him. I felt like he would be working with people that I liked and trusted as well. Got it. And so uh, what was the next step? Did they put an offer in front of you? Um, we, you know, so we signed the NDA and they asked for obviously some, the, some high level figures, you know, like our revenue expenses, client lists, sort of some stuff that they would sort of, so they could evaluate the business a little bit. And um, pretty shortly after they did say, okay, here's, thank you for this information. Here's sort of what we're thinking if we were to sort of acquire Bunk One. So that's what we would typically call like an expression of interest. It was sort of a vague two-pager kind of idea. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. It wasn't, even, it wasn't even an LOI yet. It was really just an expression of interest and in saying, okay, here's the range. Of, here's what I think Bunk One is worth at that point. Got it. And so what were they, had, had they asked you, what do you want for the business? They didn't, but I sort of had a number in mind. Um, and I can tell you that the first offer, I absolutely said, this is not going to work. The, the first <laughs> they offer came back they and, gave you in the expression of interest. Or the first like range, I should say. It wasn't really an offer. It's like, okay. okay, here's what we think, you know, we could value the company at. And I said, sorry, that really, uh, you know, you know, that, that number would never work for me. And, you know, and I meant it. So it wasn't like a, a, a thread. It's like I didn't have to sell the business. I really, as you said, as I said earlier, I love the business. I'm proud of it. Um, so I felt like I was in a good position where if they gave me an offer I liked, great, because I like them. But if they don't, this business is turning around and it's going to, I feel that the future is great and the potential is still great. I'm going to keep it and see what we can do with it. What was the first offer range on a multiple of revenue? Um, well, it, they, they did the first offer as a multiple of EBITDA. Okay. And uh, because they're, it's a, basically they're funded by a, a $1.1 billion private equity shop. And so they're very, very numbers driven. And they just basically took the EBITDA number and said, okay, here's the multiple of EBITDA we can give you. So are they and for me. Were we kind of like, sorry? you know, four, five, six times? Is it that kind of like classic PE multiple? Like a classic, yeah. I believe the initial one was a, was five times EBITDA, but I I would I, I can't say for certain that's what it was, but it was something like that. In that sort of. But moment. either way, okay. either way, that wasn't it wasn't enough because, again, you sort of heard the history of Bank One and where we were at in terms of EBITDA, so you know it wasn't at the ideal place. But not only that, it didn't value the brand that I had built, and the summer camp industry. I can't stress this enough. It's such a relationship driven industry that to have access. The, the amazing clients that I did was worth something that they weren't valuing. And that can't be valued in a current EBITDA number. How did you know that? <laughs> you know, I knew that because I looked at the number and I go, I'm sorry, this just isn't enough for what, uh, what I've built over the last 18 years. Not just me, I say me, but I, when I say me, it's really the, everybody that's helped build to, the company to where it is. And it just didn't, it didn't feel right. I mean, we guess we go back to me being an emotional guy um, that it just, it wasn't the offer that I thought 
I could say, okay, I'm turning my baby over to you. And this is something that's fair. But I guess in the context of how did you know what was fair? I mean, had, did you have friends that were selling businesses that were selling for higher multiples? That was it that the number, the, the total number wasn't going to, going to make a big enough lifestyle impact for you? Like, how did you come to the conclusion that it wasn't enough? Um, again, cause it's just all the sweat equity I had in the business and the relationships I had. And yes, I did because of my Kellogg friends, um, I would, I would rely on them and I would say, okay, you know, here's my offer. Like, what do you guys think of this? And, you know, they, they gave me really thought, thoughtful, uh, great answers in terms of like what they thought the number really should be. Um, and I, I relied on them and I also relied on my instinct on this one and said, you know, this, this doesn't just, this doesn't feel right. Like just as a pure multiple of EBITDA, it doesn't value what bunk one brings to the table. So this is a conversation you eventually have with the acquirer. They throw this expression of interest out there saying, you know, it's about five times EBITDA in our mind. You're like, eh, that's not going to work boys. So uh, we're going to, we're going to move on. How, how did that conversation go? Well, it didn't say, well, I didn't say it, you know, the conversation went well, to be honest with you, because it's an initial offer in some way, right? So I knew they were really interested in it, which was to my advantage. Um, and, uh, but I also knew from what uh, the person that came in and kept saying is that they are, they're really a number-driven private equity shop, so they have to justify the numbers somehow. So in terms of back-and-forth conversations, we eventually got to a point where we played with the EBITDA number, the multiple that they were using, that made it good for me and for them. When you say played with, this is- Yeah, I'm kidding. Well, you, <laughs> this is what you- okay, okay, what does that mean? <laughs> I can ask your questions later. So basically what we did was we, you know, we ended up doing, this is over a long back and forth, I'm summarizing many, many months, but we ended up coming up with a really interesting approach in that we used um, the trailing 12 months revenue number but then we did an adjusted expense number where we took out expenses that because of our as if we had been acquired by together work what expenses wouldn't be there essentially anymore and they took out those expenses to the point where uh, it became a very attractive uh, net profit number and that multiple of that profit number was then a much more palatable number in terms of selling bunk one Awesome. So, so you didn't get them to move on the five times number, but you, through the adjustment process, you got the aggregate number much higher. Oh, I take it back. So I also got them to move on that on the five times number as well. Nice. And uh, so, so just, I, I can't tell you the numbers in terms of the, the sale, but I, what I can say is that what I got them to, uh, to move towards was a fixed cash number up front which was essentially a multiple, but we actually fixed the cash number. And then we did two, and then we did uh, a, a one and a half times EBITDA number uh, in notes up front in the, in the business. And we did another one and a half times uh, EBITDA number if Bunk One ever, or what should say ever, when, when Bunk One does double EBITDA at any point over a 12 month uh, period into the future. So it really is, I see it as a seven times EBITDA at that point, because the cash number was basically about five times uh, up front. And then, a num sorry, the cash number was four times up front, and then another three times 
in notes now and into the future. Exp great. Love the detail, by the way. Explain, if you would, the notes piece. So it, just kind of for folks who, uh, uh, you know, you are essentially financing the acquirer to buy the business. Is, is that what, what you mean by a note? Sorry, no. It's a, it's a note in the larger together work um, uh, business. Okay. And so how would that, how does that work? So essentially it's a, it's a note that has a, you know, present value, uh, one and a half times EBITDA, a note that has its present value, uh, whatever that EBITDA number is times one and a half that is cashed out at any um, transition point in the future when together work either uh, sells to somebody else or goes public. Got it. And, and until the, either of those liquidity events, uh, you basically get the coupon? Or do you just roll? You get the coupon, and you know it, it. I can't tell you the number exactly, but it you know it has a certain interest rate and a value to that number. Got it. Um, that is very. That I think is is it was a good. It was it was good for them, and it was good for us in terms of where where we came out on the deal. Got it. And then the the one and a half uh, times you get that when the company doubles in size, whether that's next year or five years from now or ten years from now. That's correct. It could be at any twelve month. A period at Bunk One where we double EBITDA from not the by the way not the adjusted EBITDA number but the actual EBITDA number. So it's a double of the actual EBITDA number right now. We then get the extra one and a half times on the note. Got it. And the adjustment process uh, where you're where you're trying to tell the acquirer you know how the business will perform in their hands, meaning once you've scrubbed out all these expenses that they won't need. Um, that adjustment process, like how much, how much did you grow the EBITDA through those adjustments? Would it be uh, a 10% improvement or like a 50% improvement? Just, just a sense of, of how I mean, that I, that I obviously can't, that I, that I can't address, but it did, it did grow. Okay. Materially grow. And, and, and from, from your perspective, the things that, that you kind of worked through with them was, was, was mostly around the expenses that you were incurring as an independent business that they would not necessarily have to pay up because they had shared resources because they're a huge company. Yeah, it was a very reasonable negotiation because it was things that they really wouldn't uh, be responsible for in the future, essentially. But it wasn't really our current EBITDA number, but they were adjusting the revenue, the expenses to make it a more, a more to make it the overall sale price a number that I would be willing to do. Got it. So. I want to go back to something because I, I think uh, we as entrepreneurs could potentially overplay our hand, so to speak, uh, with the expression of interest. Uh, when it, uh, the original expression of interest came in at five times, uh, you knew you weren't prepared to sell for that. Some people, you know, would have reacted perhaps negatively to that and thrown up their hands and said, how dare you insult me with such a crappy offer? You didn't do that though. You kept them on the line. Maybe, maybe walk through what your, your sort of tenor was, uh, your negotiation posture was with them when you knew you had an offer that you were not prepared to accept. How did you, how did you keep them at the table willing to sort of keep like, do you know what I'm asking? Yeah. I, I think the question is almost backwards because I don't think I kept them at the table. I think it's, I had this personal credible threat of walking away. Like if I didn't get a deal, I liked. So I, if I, they didn't stay at the table, it wasn't, I was moving on with my business. And I think they, they knew that. 
So I was able to get the deal that I, that I wanted because I, you know, my credible threat was, okay, I'm not going to sell to you. Was there any time that you thought, okay, I've got to get another, another offer here from a competitor. So I'm not getting, you know, sucked into this proprietary deal with one potential buyer. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to say that because that was maybe one of the things, if I could do it again, uh, I would have more offers simultaneously, but frankly, I really liked these guys. And I trusted these guys. And again, I didn't have to sell. So if I was going to sell, I wanted to sell to these guys. So I almost hurt my posture a little bit by not having another offer simultaneously. But to be honest, we also signed a letter of intent fairly quickly where there was an exclusivity period. Um, so that those would have been, you know, tabled at that point anyway. Um, but, you know, maybe initially I should have fielded a few more offers, but I kind of, I don't think it would have really changed the outcome uh, really in, in any way, to be honest with you. Got it. How was the diligence process for you? Oh my God. Uh, they sent us a little, I mean, you know, like any good company and I actually liked that it was a complicated due diligence process. They sent us a list of uh, like 120 items that they wanted us to go through and you, everything from corporate documents, customers, our ops, you know, finance, the HR, I, the Intel, the IT stuff, the legal stuff, I mean, you name it, they, they looked through it and they called our customers and they did their due diligence. And, you know, I like that they did their due diligence because I want them to know what they're buying, how did you know, you, and I want them to know. How did, you tell, how did you talk to your customers about, I mean, did you tell the customers that you had the reason uh, these guys are calling you is because we're thinking of selling the company to them? Well, they had given us a list of maybe 25 customers that they were thinking of calling. And um, so we had contacted those customers just to say, like, like it wasn't like an, like an infinite list of the customers. It was a very specific list. And they did that for us in case the deal didn't go through. And, you know, for privacy concerns, essentially, uh, even if they did buy the company, we, everything, you know, everything is above board. We want to make sure that they know that this is a good company and we're selling to a good company. Uh, so we were able to call our customers and say, okay, just so you know, this, this is what's going on. You know, we just, we love it. Whatever you say about us, you say about us, that's up to you, but we want you to know what's going on essentially. So you told them you were in, in the process of selling the company. We, we, I mean, that's like, that's too, you know, you don't say you're in the process of selling coming, but we're in the process of potentially being acquired because, you know, you don't know if the deal is going to go through or not. And if it doesn't, they're still your clients and you have to reassure them that you were selling only because it was somebody who was going to take bunk one to the next level. It wasn't just to sell to get out. How did you tell your employees? Um, so we, we actually, when the deal was uh, moving forward in, and we felt confident that it was going to close, um, we actually sat down with the employees, uh, Rob and I together, and we sort of outlined what's been going on and, and who the new company is. And, and we reassured and we assured them that they're not looking to really change, uh, you know, fire anybody or make uh, crazy changes. Um, but we just want to make them aware that in a few months, if something did go through, this is what was going on. And how was that received? Um, it was received well. It was received well. I think, you know, the way we have, we have some great people right now who work at Bunk One. 
and they want what's best for the business. And we sort of outlined why um, the company that was buying us would make Bunk One a better overall company, and it would only help them. And and they would be part of a bigger organization, and there's more there's excitement about um, future roles and, and growth for them. And so uh, I think it was actually well received by them. Interesting. And so what, like, talk to me about your personal roles, both you and Rob, um, as part of this, the kind of one and a half times even a tied to the note and the one and a half times time to the doubling of the company. I mean, are you both required to be employed by the company or how did they structure sort of that piece? Uh, to, to try to retain yeah. you guys. Well, so so actually, I was part of my um, criteria for selling Bunk One is I if I was going to sell, I was personally going to basically move on. Um, you know, after 17 years of running my business as as an entrepreneur, I didn't see myself working for a larger company. It wasn't right for me. So. So that was part of the deal. Like if you buy Bunk One, I'm I will retire as this as the CEO. Um, on the other hand, Rob um, is amazing. They loved, and so they were very um, keen, and, and as they should have been, on keeping him and making sure that he signed a uh, you know a contract going forward with them and 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 running Bunk One for them moving forward. And how was the relationship with Rob as you went through the negotiation? Were you guys uh, me and Roger? Yeah, were you guys aligned along the way, or did it get rocky at times? I, I I can honestly tell you, it never for a second got rocky between me and Rob. He is just a great guy, and uh, we share the same vision of how we want Bunk One to grow and what the other works can do for us and for Bunk One. And uh, I consider him a, a very very good friend and just a, a great mind in, in terms of what he can do for Bunk One. What's been the hardest part about moving on? <laughs> you know, it's, I built relationships 17 years. It's like, I don't have a, I got married last year. I, I don't have a child yet. So Bunk One was my baby, right? And uh, to let go of your baby is never easy. But I feel like 17, 18 years is kind of a funny time frame because that's when you send your child off to college. And that's kind of what I was doing, right? I was, I was, my child was graduating and it was moving on. And, um, and it was time for me and for the child to separate and, and grow. And uh, it was time for me to do new and exciting things in my life. Speaking of those, tell us about Tribe. I think this is a cool idea. Thank you. So, so one of my latest ventures is Tribe, which is a Jewish dating app, but it's not your average app. It's, uh, it's a very um, women uh, uh, empowerment app in that the uh, the guys aren't wasting girls' times on the app. The uh, you can't talk to a, you can't uh, talk to a girl until you ask her out on an actual date. So girls aren't so you're not wasting girls' times on the app. It's not a, a, a Tinder sort of hookup app. It's a real meaningful connection app, and uh, it's it's a very exciting thing that we've been developing. That's great. And so this is the next chapter. I mean, is this company built to sell as well? Uh, it's funny you say built to sell. It's, I've been thinking about that since I, I got your, uh, got your note. Cause I wouldn't say bunk one was really built to sell most effectively. I would say it was more, uh, it was built out of a passion and, um, the sell sort of came afterwards, 
But, and I learned about during the process about how most effectively to sell the business. But I wouldn't say it was built to sell. This company, on the other hand, uh, I feel like the, the lessons I've learned from Bunk One, I've sort of taken into this company and, and how to build the company to, to sell it most effectively. Like what would be the biggest lesson that you, that you try to apply now in, in the new company? I think it's just, you know, the way you set up the business and the, and sort of the equity decisions you make and um, uh, just making sure all the technology, you know, is, is built most effectively. And um, yeah. What sort of equity decisions would you make differently? If you were, um, you know, I, I feel like when, when I started Bunk One, you, know, you kind of don't know what you don't know, right? And this is 1999, and uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of cash at that point, and so I would give out equity in lieu of cash, essentially. And I would say to other entrepreneurs, be very careful uh, in terms of the equity you give out, because it could be very expensive into the future um, to sort of have that equity uh, not in your hands. So when you actually were acquired by TogetherWork, you had you had people that you'd given equity to that that still retained that equity to that day. I mean, yeah, some retained the equity, some you know, uh, were I bought out before uh, TogetherWorks acquired uh, the equity. It just became a little more complicated than it needed to be, and um, uh, you know, I think like if you can pay people at the beginning, I think it's it's good advice to say pay the people. Pay the people. I love that. Uh, Pay the where, people. Where do people find out about Tribe? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, so I have an Instagram account. Uh, it's Ari Acker. Um, my name is Ari Ackerman, but it's A-R-I-A-C-K-E-R. -E and I post some fun Tribe videos, and we do all sorts of fun Tribe stuff that you can log in and, and check out what the latest is. And you can download Tribe uh, in, uh, in, on your iPhone as well. Awesome. Ari Ackerman, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. -L -L